Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to the November 2015 podcast. And I also want to throw out a happy Thanksgiving to all of you. This amazing community that we've built, I want to thank all of you for being a part of it. And uh, we have gotten so many questions in, and I thank you. Keep those questions rolling in so we can continue to keep this podcast as fresh and answering the questions that will hopefully create solutions for all of you out there. All right, let's get started. Here's the first one. And this whole theme of this one is going to be kind of getting into the business. I've done a couple of these in past podcasts, but these questions keep on getting asked. So I know that uh, people are kind of reaching out and really want my advice and pick my brain on these type of issues. So I thought it would be cool to kind of go from something uh, last month that was all based on the attitudes within the business to getting started in this business and having the resiliency of actually making it through. All right, here's our first question. Hey, Shane, I really enjoyed hearing about your success story of getting into the business from starting as a low man on the totem pole to superstar DP. Being a loner myself in Northeast Ohio, I have no idea who to connect with. I would love to work under a mentor, but I've been struggling to connect with any local DPs. Is moving to a higher populated area of filmmakers my best option? Always appreciate your insight. Thanks, Brandon. All right, Brandon in Ohio. Here's my advice on that. Two ways you can take it. I would say before Shane's Inner Circle, you would definitely have to go to a more populated area because what we're doing for all of you, and this is what I've found through talking with people in a lot of these regional markets, is we're doing what Lydia and I had hoped this whole inner circle would do, and that is give you a mentor a virtual mentor that guides you and directs you and gives you advice just like a mentor would if he was standing or she was standing right next to you. So what the inner circles, what the dream of it was, was that it would ignite 
all these regional markets, all the places where you don't have all the resources and you don't have all the other DPs to mentor under. And that it can be a beautiful stopgap for you to get you started in the market that you live and breathe in. And then once you've built up your uh, resume and your reel, you can burst out and go to a higher populated area. This was the dream, not only to educate, not only to inspire, but me growing up in a very small town in near Ithaca, New York, there was no mentors there either. I had to go to school in Boston where I studied under some technicians there and then eventually just having the balls to go out to Los Angeles and go for it and drive for my dream to be in this movie business. There's going to be some times where you can do something like that. I didn't have any credits, really. I didn't have much experience either. I just knew I wanted to be in this movie business. I knew it was right for me and I loved it. I just followed my dream and went after it. Your answer to your question is, do you have to move to an area that has a a larger film community? I think you need to have a nice conversation with the Hamill brothers because the Hamill brothers are a perfect example of what we're all talking about. They went to the IE Illumination Experience Tour. They have been Inner Circle members from day one, and they have really soaked up all of this knowledge, and they've put it into practice, and they are down in Lubbock, Texas, I think, and this team of filmmakers is really knocking it out in this regional market. I think it's something that is a testament to their ingenuity their expertise, as well as what the inner circle is there for all of you. It gives you the brick and mortar to be able to be confident and to push forward and to move forward and to deliver and go for your dream. I think if you love where you're living right now, I would just ingest all that the inner circle has to offer, soak it up like a sponge, get your reel together, shoot some stuff, and then head out and and try to break into a higher populated area. Like I said, when I came out to Los Angeles, I hit the ground running. I went to a rental house and I just said, okay, can I work? I'll do lighting. I'll do grip. I'll do, I'll pack shelves and grip trucks. I'll drive them. I'll do whatever it takes, you know, starting right down at the bottom and just working my way up. And I worked for free on like eight movies. We're not talking free for a day or two. I'm talking free for four months on a feature film where they call it, can't even remember the term because I think I blocked it out of my mind, where the, oh, deferred, that's what it was. It's deferred payment. So if the movie makes money, then you will be deferred money and your rate. Out of the six movies that I did for free that I think took four years of out of my life, which I really cracked the code and, and learned so much in those environments, I never received one check. This movie business is all about doing your time, putting the effort, rising above the top, working harder than the person next to you, rising above making people say, wow, that kid is good. Those are the things that are going to help propel you in this business. And then, of course, talent is something that also 
will help you. But first, you got to have that incredible work ethic to just get in there and do it. All right. Well, I hope that answers your question, Brandon. And we will move on to the second question. Question two. If a DP wants to strengthen his commercial reel producing his own spec commercials, he or she should have a little bit of everything. Beauty, lifestyle, tabletops, food, automotive, or it should narrow it down to one single category like car specs, for instance, to have more chances with an agency. Gene Luca. All right, Gene Luca. My advice to that is you have to do what you love. You got to do what you love to shoot and what you love to lens. Putting yourself into kind of an agency box by trying to do specific things for your reel. I've never had it go well in any way, shape, and form. You submit a reel to an agency and you're shooting a toaster commercial. If you do not have a toaster commercial on your reel, then you will not be considered. Yeah, it's the truth. It's it's unbelievable. I think that you should do what you love and obviously... If you love shooting cars, then you should shoot them. If you love shooting lifestyle, then you're going to be great at shooting lifestyle. With spec spots, you got to really, because a lot of times you're investing your own money. And I think it always comes down to, it's got to be something you love. Anytime I try to do something to fit in the proverbial agency box, I'm going the wrong direction. Do what you love, Fill it with passion, commitment. Just go in there and do a spec spot that gets you noticed, that people say, wow, that's intelligent, or whoa, I laughed my ass off, or wow, that was sleek, and God, the way the car looked, and all these kind of things. I wouldn't dress it up so much for the agency, let's say. I would dress it up more for what you love and what you're good at, because those things are going to quantitate and get you jobs that you want want to do. Question number three. Hi, Shane. I just graduated from film school in New York. I'm an aspiring DP. Your work is incredible and is a huge source of inspiration for me. Thank you very much. I'm emailing you with a few questions. I have some fears about entering a field that is so competitive. I realize there are millions of young people my age who want to do exactly what I want to do. Any advice you could give me? Ultimately, I hope to be able to stay in my hometown of Albany, New York, be my home base, and travel for cinematography jobs. Do you think this is a realistic goal? I currently use a Panasonic GH4 and Sony A7S with the Atomos Shogun. I also use Roken Cine lenses. I'm planning to get the BM Ursa next week for some commercial gigs I have coming up. Do you have any experience working with the Ursa? Do you think it's worth it? If not, what cameras and lenses would you recommend? I'm willing to spend up to 14K. Thanks for your time. Kudos on your amazing work. Best, John. All right, well, John's got like five questions in here. So let's systematically take these down. So you live in Albany, New York, and you want to see if you can keep that as your home base, even with all this incredible competition. I kind of answered this question in the first one a little bit, and I wanted to use your question as a refresher to that question. And this is, again, where all of us, our whole staff, uh, Lydia and I have seen with just the Facebook community and people talking about how they've 
gained the uh, mentoring that they never had. They've gained the confidence. They're getting jobs that they never thought they would get. They're being signed on as DPs and production companies that they never thought they would be where they are right now. This is the power of the inner circle. This is what it's going to be able to afford you. A home base in Albany and being able to work and travel around. Yes, you can make that happen. I think years ago without the resources that we have, probably not. I mean, you would have to do what I did. I grew up in a very small town, much smaller than Albany. There was no community of filmmakers in Auburn or Ithaca, New York, much to say. I moved to Boston to work in that film industry there and to go to college there. And then out of that, I decided that after I'd been in the business there for two years, I realized that the only way I was going to move up is if I created a homicide with a guy in, in, in front of me. So I didn't want to get locked up and thrown away the key. So I moved to Los Angeles to follow my dream. This, I think, was the past. I think what I'm seeing now from the responses that we're getting from the testimonials that people are sharing with us, that this now makes that possible. It's possible for you to be mentored by all of us at the inner circle here and for it to take your filmmaking skills from zero to a hundred in a matter of a year. Others, it's taken even less time depending on your skill level and, and how much you invest in it. How much you give is going to be how much you get back. I think that there's a lot of members that work in regional markets in Washington and in Pittsburgh and in Texas and all these places and Ohio and the Carolinas. This is where you now have somebody that's mentoring you, that's kind of guiding you. And now you just take that proof of concept and now make it your own. Create your own creative vision off of my blueprints, out of that brick and mortar, get in there and make it your own. I think that out of that, you will start to build an incredible reel. From there, you're going to want to move out out of Albany. You're going to want to move to larger markets. And I wouldn't really be worried about the competition. Think about where I came from. I didn't have a dad who was a cinematographer. I didn't have a dad or a mom that was in the movie business. I had a dad who was a, a professor assistant at Cornell University and a farmer. And I had a sixth grade school teacher for a mom. I just made it my own and said, I'm going to be in this movie business and I'm going to be a director of photography. If you have the will, there is the way. If you have passion and you cannot live without it, then you are going to succeed. And that's the way I felt. I mean, I could not live without shooting. Every day I show up to work and I go, I cannot believe they pay me to do this because I have so much fun. It's so much fun creating and lighting and lensing and telling these stories. I always talk about how I get excited about shooting a Jimmy Dean sausage commercial compared to lensing Terminator Salvation. I'm excited at the same amount for both because I just love what I do. John, follow your dream and just grab it. All right. Now, you currently have the GH4. What are my thoughts on the Ursa? 
Well, the Ursa, I wouldn't really bother myself with. The Ursa Mini, with all its specs, looks pretty intriguing. So I think that is going to be a very good camera. I'm hoping that everything that they learned from the Ursa, they're going to put in the Mini. Just like the Blackmagic Cinema camera, when it first came out, it needed a lot of love and understanding, and it ended up being a great camera. I'm hoping, and I have a lot of confidence, that the Ursa Mini will hit its mark and really give a great cost-effective alternative for people that are looking to stay below the 14K mark. Another option is obviously the Canon C300 Mark II is just a little bit above your spending. Obviously, you can't get any lenses because it's all about the camera uh, burning up your budget. The Raven is a very wise choice, I would think, because with all the testing that I've seen with the Raven, it's the same Dragon sensor. And if you own any Canon Primes at all, that camera loves Canon L series and it loves Canon Cinema Glass. It really comes alive with it. I see that you have the Rokinon Cine lenses. Obviously, the Canon lenses really work well with the Raven. And again, they're more DSLR lenses, so you're not spending that vast amount of money. The Rokins are very much the same. So I think the Raven would probably be my first choice across the board that would enable you a little money to get some glass also. Hey, Shane, I have to reiterate how great of an idea you and your wife had when you came up with the Hurl blog and the Inner Circle. Well, thank you very much, Tyler. We love all of you, and we love this community and everything that we've built. It's really been, uh, kind of warms our heart um, with all of you and hearing all the stories and the success stories. When I get on the Facebook page, there was a guy that just posted that he shot this music video, and then the band saw it, and they said it was unbelievable, and now it's their signature video, and he never thought he would have that ability, and great great success stories and keep them coming. We love it. For someone of your experience and prestige in the industry to have made a forum to reach so many of us in this industry and sparking growth from within our various career levers means a ton. Well, it means a ton to both Lydia and I and our whole HV team. Um, my question is in regards to selecting crew members. For a low budget and in some cases micro budget projects, Hiring good, competent, and skilled crew members is a challenge. There is a pool of individuals who do great work, but of course, this comes at a price, sometimes much more expensive than what the production can afford. How would you suggest for someone to go about in hiring a skilled crew with experience and great attitudes for production with limited resources? Thanks, Tyler Dixon. Well, Tyler, one thing that I learned from Herb Ritz was this man surrounded himself with greatness. You want to do the same. But on a micro budget, you have to pick where you surround yourself with greatness. A focus puller is worth your weight in gold. This is where you want to spend money. A good key grip, somebody that understands how to rig, how to position lights, how to shape light, 
is another one. And obviously your gaffer, moving stuff around and putting the lights and powering them all up and all that stuff. The people under them do not have to be as experienced. I've found that I have taken on my micro budgets. When I was starting out, I hired most of my best friends. And I hired most of my best friends because I knew they would have my back. They would go the distance. They would do the long hours. They were committed. They had the passion. You know, a lot of the times they're like, well, hey, I'm not doing much. I'd love to be a part of that. So I surrounded myself with with using a lot of my best friends for doing the jobs that necessarily didn't require a very skilled technician. In the wardrobe department, hair and makeup, these are people that you can find. I found a hairdresser that I really liked. She did makeup as well. She had done makeup for weddings and everything. Well, we brought her in and she did incredible work on doing hair and makeup. I had a person that just loved style. She just always looked good. And I was like, would you mind doing wardrobe for this project? And she was like, absolutely. You find they don't necessarily have to be within the film industry sometimes. I tend to think a little more out of the box to surround yourself with friends that can help you. But if that doesn't have any place to say that you can do this, then you are looking to fill those key positions with people that are going to set you up for success and then you can filter in lesser experienced people. I find that it's so rewarding on all these inner circle shoots that we do because we invite the members to come join us and to help create our content for each year. We just recently had one that you can see now. It's up on the Hurl blog, which is Story Inspire capture. And it's the behind the scenes of creating content for the inner circle. Imagine a lot of the people that are coming are from different areas. They don't have the necessary experience. I, as their mentor, is walking around and teaching them how to set each light, how to set themselves up for success, how to focus, how to set C-stands, all the things that's required to bring your stories to life. I start out at the bottom on the technical side, on the lighting side. And it gave me such a beautiful foundation for me to now be able to instruct all of you on every aspect of filmmaking, from the director to photography and the filmmaking side. Of course, I don't have the wardrobe skills or the set designing skills, but I do work with the production designer very closely in, in building the sets and adding windows and where to place windows and talking about ceilings and colors and the palette. All those things are discussed with he or she. These are the things that are very essential to finding those gems, those ones to spend the money on, and then they will lead the team of more inexperienced individuals. And I find that it works incredibly well on these inner circle shoots. So I think proof of concept, it's going to work incredibly well for you. Next question. Once in your podcasting, you stress the importance of the art director, the set designer, the location scout and managers, and the wardrobe person. I couldn't agree more with that. If someone wants to self 
produce a spec commercial where he or she can find these key people. Their names are not on creative handbooks or variety 411. And I was wondering if you could kindly point out a way to get access to these resources. Sometimes it can be frustrating for a DP to be the executive producer because camera department people are more in my network, but I don't have the instant connections with wardrobe people, art department people, or set designer. Hints. It kind of segues beautifully into the last question. These people all have agents. And I've found that the agencies that are not necessarily the big ones, like you shouldn't be going to UTA or William Morris or any of these, there's a lot of smaller agencies that just deal with production designers, costume designers, set designers, art directors, all of these people, and they have the tiers. These agencies have the people that are the big fish in the small pond. Then there's the small fish that are trying to become the big fish. And then there's the even minnows that are trying to be the small fish. Okay, this is how the the business works. There are always of these agents that are there that if you have a really good project, they are looking for that minnow or that small fish in the big pond to be able to give them the spec commercial that you have. And they'll design it for you. They'll art direct it. They'll costume design it. They'll do all these things. And on LA411 or the creative handbooks, there is a a list of talent agencies that specifically list who they represent. They even represent producers, actors, you know, screenwriters, the whole deal. But there are some below the line agents that just wrapped director photographies, they rep costume design, art directors, wardrobe, production design, all those below the line talents. So that is where I would go first. I've found that a lot of these specs commercials that I worked on when I was starting out, you find that costume designer and you find that production designer that comes in just like I was the young gun. I was the small fish in this agency. I wasn't the big fish. I was the small fish and I was doing anything I could. And a spec spot would come in that a director was looking for somebody to shoot it for free. And I'd raise my hand. Hey, yeah, I'll do that. I'll work for free. I'll do whatever it takes. And there's plenty of production designers and costume designers that are are right out there wanting to do that same exact thing. So that's the the first place I would look. How much input do you have with the production designer during pre-production? I know the production designer works very closely with the director to find the look and the feel of the script, but how much a part of that discussion do you have? Or does the production designer just bring the choices to you and the director? Thanks. Let me kind of break it all down. I'm usually one of the last people hired. You have the production designer that starts way in advance with the location manager. And the location manager and him or her are out looking at all the different locations and trying to find and mold the look and the feel and the mood of this film or the TV series or whatever you're trying to create. Let's take into the Badlands, for example. Carrie Meyer was our production designer. And this is one very talented individual. And he was on it probably about two and a half to three months prior to me even getting out of the TV series. And he had had all the locations pretty much vetted out. Uh, The director uh, flew down several times to go through pictures and visit the locations and get the whole look and feel 
in the pocket. After all those, obviously all these location pictures are shared with me and I can kind of weigh in on them and what I'm loving and what I'm not and all that kind of good stuff. I'm usually, like I said, close to be the last one hired on the project. And by being the last one hired, you have a ton of catch up to do. I had five weeks to prep into the Badlands. We had a very accelerated prep. We hit it head on and I'm going out with the production designer to the locations with the director. I'm listening to their conversations as well as being a part of them. You Immediately, you're starting to see where the whole film is kind of gravitating towards because they've had a lot more conversations than you have ever had. And you're trying to get up to speed as quickly as possible. When you get onto a picture and you're going to feel this uh, with as more you experience it, the submersion is huge. And uh, you can ask Lydia. She gets a call at the end of week one of prep saying, oh my God, I'm not going to pull this off. There's too much. I don't know how I'm going to make this schedule. Trust me, 25 years of experience. And she gets the phone call every single project that I'm on. Every single one. It is hilarious. And she talks me off the cliff every single time. And what she says is just take it one day at a time. Because when you get on this project, you are getting the scoops formulated some ideas, of course, and you're just chomping at the bit and you're starting to see the locations and you're starting to see the locations and how you're going to light them. And then you're looking at the page count and then how are you going to do this? There's six pages on this day and you're moving three company moves and da 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 da. And that's just one one day and then the next day happens, you go to another location and you're just starting to see it and it builds and builds and builds and builds to the point you're like, ah, this is week one of prep of the director of photography. The production designer, a lot of time even wardrobe is on before me because a lot of the stuff on Into the Badlands had to be built way in advance. These departments are all on board before I even hit the ground in New Orleans. It's all catch up and I've gotten a really great process to prepping. One of the process is just my organization and how I systematize and try to break everything down so it is ingested so it doesn't feel so big. And I'm going to be sharing all of these things with you in the coming years of how I prep feature films and how I prep my works and how I manage the stress and, and all these things. But these are all things, my ideas coming that I can pass on to you because they are worth their weight in gold. It's taken me very, very long to come up with an etiquette and a workflow to be able to prep features where I feel like I don't need 15 weeks to prep something. I can walk in and prep a project in three weeks and feel like I had 15 weeks. And that is the magic. And that's where I'm really at in my career now where I can do this and it feels really good. And each time I'm still reinventing the wheel, using a camera system that has never been used, trying to do a look that's never been done, you know, trying to use a, a specific device that's really never been vetted. You know, all these different things add to the freak out of week one where you're saying, I don't know how I'm going to pull this off. Okay, I got sidetracked, but that's good because it created a good story of, uh, of, of resiliency within this business, which really is that. You have to really find your inner core. And just like what Lydia says to me every single time, just take one day 
at a time. And once you start to look at the schedule as just one day, you're like, this isn't bad at all. This is, this is no problem because you're not reading the whole book. You're just reading four or five pages. And those four or five pages are doable in a day. Working with the production designer, Carrie Meyer and I, we picked all the paint colors. We picked curtains. We picked floor colors. We picked all the different things, rust levels. With hair and makeup wardrobe, we picked the blood colors. We picked every color that they were making of all their costumes. Needs to be a team. It's a collaboration. And it's getting everyone of your team united so you're making one vision. When you can get everyone working on the same vision and on the same team and not everyone making their own movie is when you really hit it out of the park. To answer your question, it all comes down to also talking about where like windows are going to be in sets. So it gives you the ability to light, the height of the ceilings, how many ceiling pieces you have. Talking about the specific of being able to use the like if it's a set that has a lot of lighting in it, the use of practicals or embedding lights in the set. I remember on Terminator Salvation when we created that whole submarine that Christian Bale goes down into. Well, that was all like embedded lights and light pads and Roscoe lights pads and all these different integrated things. I'm talking directly with the production designer, talking about the color tone of them, talking the color temperature of them, all these different things we're discussing, where we're placing lights, where we can use all this. So it's a very, very collaborative experience and you want to be all over it. You don't want to necessarily let he or she make all those decisions. You want to be a part of making those decisions and you want to be a part of understanding what your advice and what the weight of your knowledge is going to, if done right, you're going to shoot faster you're going to be much more efficient. And all of a sudden, the sets start to light themselves. Uh, with the window placed in the right place, with a window at the end of a hallway that would have gone jet black if somebody walked down it now by putting a window at the end of a hallway, the person is silhouette so they can walk down the hallway and you don't have to light as much. It's like these little things you can talk specifically with the production designer to set you up for success and help with schedule, help with time, help with budget, and help with crew size. Next question. Shane, I'm currently in film school and your illumination experience videos and inner circle content have been invaluable to me in my education. I have practically memorized the Hollywood camera works and master courses and hot movies, which has helped me understand emotional motivations for character movement and stops body language and meaningful movements, emotional motivations for camera movement, keyframes, and how they make blocking more efficient and bring continuity to all other their shots, understanding blocking terms, techniques, and why they use them and the like. Hinging, grouping, pivoting, open and closing frames, camera, plots, thinking in parallel, keyframe, keyframe, thinking backwards, blocking transitions, tracking keyframes. Holy smoke. He didn't say that. I did. Parallax and proper emotional feelings and many more techniques. How do I frame this sort of thinking along with the old school way of blocking that says, go in, shoot the wide, medium, and the overs, and the close-up. This old-school way will always give you the coverage you need. Do you use one-way 
grid of thinking versus the other? Is it best to try and combine the two or only use one to be more focused? Okay, let me answer that question. So obviously you've done your research. Obviously you have really dug in there and tried to learn as much as possible about all of this, about the art of filmmaking, which is awesome. So, but let's break it down. The best way to shoot is you shoot the wide shot, you shoot the medium, you shoot the overs, and you go for the close-up. Now, I'm all about new technology. I'm all about what's the latest and greatest. But there's some things you just don't buck. And the reason why you don't buck them is because they're the most efficient way to make a film and to tell your story. If you start in a close-up and then you move out to the wide, the choices that you made in the close-up might not be possible in your wide shot. You might not have a way to bring that light in. You might not have the way to keep the blocking working. It is block, light, and shoot. It's something that we've done for a hundred and some odd years. I get to the same kind of thing when people talk to me about my digital workflow. How do you want to do this? I'm going to do something crazy. And they're like, really? What? Okay, we're going to shoot on these things called digital magazines. Okay. And then we're going to take those and we're going to deliver them to the lab. What? And the lab is going to process them. Oh, okay. And then we're going to take those magazines after they've been processed, backed up, and LTO'd, and we're going to erase them and send them back to us, and we're going to shoot on them again. I just described what we've done for 125 years. We shoot on film, hold that negative, we send that negative to the lab, they develop it, and that is what we are doing in the digital age. We're not processing it on set. We're not color correcting it on set. We're not backing it up on set. We're not doing any of those things. We are doing it like we've done it for 127 years. And the reason why is because it is the best way to do it. It has all the checks and balances that come into playing with our digital negative as it did with our film negative. Just as the way that we light, we block, light, and shoot is the same etiquette of the wide to the medium to the over to the close-up. That doesn't mean that you cannot do a whole shot as a oneer. That does not mean that you can come up with inventive ways to move the camera and do all the things that you've studied and talked about. But the simple fact still remains. You need to first know where all the actors are going to be able to then light where they just went to be able to lens and light as a unit. And I find that anytime I do that. I'm incredibly fast. I'm incredibly efficient. And I get all the coverage and leave nothing on the table. And that's what you want. Now, I work with some directors that don't like to work that way. They like to start with a, a specific, it might not be the wide shot, it might be a medium shot, it might be a concept shot. And then, you know, you're constantly be between like them being some effects gag, then you 
don't shoot this shot in the right order. And what you find out is you tend to start to lose your way because the light was coming from a specific angle and the wide shot. And then you went in for the medium and the close up and everything gels. And then all of a sudden you go back and forth and 90 degree angle and then another 45 degree angle. And then you spin all around. And you're like, well, where was the light? The light was coming from there. But you start to get confused. I've been doing this for 25 years and I was confused four days ago because we literally circled the actors before we really even established what was happening. And I lost track of where the light was coming from, depending on where the camera was. So these are things that slow you down because then you have to stop for a second. You're like, okay, it was coming from the side of the sconce. But when we went over to this shot, we flipped it because they were blocking it and da-da-da-da-da. Because there's sometimes where you do need to flip the key. It's all well and good that it's coming from the one side that you've established. But when it's all said and done, whatever looks good, looks good. And flat does not look good. So if you tend to be on the line of, of sight where you're going to be flat to the actor and the, the light's going to be flat to his face and your angle is kind of flat, well, you got to go over and use light to shape that and make it so it's not flat. These are things that I'm always thinking about. Now, I find that when you do block light and shoot, it's incredibly efficient. You absolutely know where your motivation is and you can really deliver it on time, on schedule, and on budget. This is going to be our last question. Shane, thank you for all that you do and everything that you share. I was catching up with my IC viewing and caught the video on focal length. Wow. My first thought was once again, Shane has taught me something valuable. My second thought is a bit broader and brings me to my question. Is the use of focal length and distance lighting everything done to create the image subjective? Or did I miss some rules written in stone? Keep up the awesome work. Rock on, John. Okay, John. To create the image subjective. Well, I guess... It's all on what that story is that you want to tell. On this latest project, let's take the babysitter for New Line that I'm doing right now. We use a very radical sense to the lensing on this project. We're using 21 mils pushed six to nine inches away from people's faces. And then at the same time, we're shooting 75 millimeter and 100 millimeter close-ups. Why? Well, there's times when our character wants to feel like he is, there's juxtapositions in this film. One, he wants to feel small, that he's bullied, that he's a geek and he doesn't fit in, okay? That is done with the wider lenses pushed in close, feeling very small, looking down on him. That is what that lens will do and that focal length and that wider view pushed in close. Then there's the cinematic style that when he's with the babysitter and he's in love with her and they're hanging together, I'm doing those with 75 mil, bokeh and the background blowing out beautifully. This is when he is in heaven. This is what he loves. This is when he's comfortable. He's not bullied. He's not looked down upon. He is with the babysitter that he's in love with and they're a team. Okay, so you can see just with the choice of focal length, I can make somebody be belittled and small 
And then ones where I can build him up and be a hero and that he's uh, full of life. This is what I was trying to convey. And there's a new inner circle lens focal length that's coming towards the end of the year that will really help show that perspective uh, nicely as well. I use my daughter, Kira, and she's sitting in and then we start on a 14 mil, then we go to a 24, a 35, a 50. I go through all the focal lengths and you can really see that subjective feel and how it makes you feel. What's your emotion that you're getting from just that lens and the lensing? It's not whether it's softer or whether it's anamorphic or whether it's flares nicer. I'm not talking about the lens characteristics of that. I'm talking about focal lengths and how close you put your actor to the lens and what that does and what it feels like. I always tend to, when I want to be with somebody and be immersed with them, I'm shooting with wider lenses pushed in tighter. When I want to make the background go more out of focus and make them feel like the world around them is not so important, but they are incredibly important, that's what longer lenses give you. It's really something Something that is truly your story will will tell you the more experience you get with using different focal lengths and experimenting with them pushed in really close and back and all this stuff is going to give you the necessary tools and the necessary education and experience to make those informed choices on your projects and be able to tell emotional stories that really convey exactly what you want the audience to feel like uh, based on uh, your lens choice and composition and the lighting that goes and sets the mood and the tone. Well, that concludes our November podcast. I cannot thank this community enough. All of you are absolutely incredible. I wish you once again a happy Thanksgiving. I just want to all to remember to continue to submit the podcast questions so we can keep this uh, wonderful community flowing with all the questions and solutions and career advice and everything in between uh, coming full force to all of you to continue to share with this incredible community. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. If you're looking to challenge yourself, if you're looking to become a better filmmaker, as well as being mentored from 30 years of experience, go to shanesinnercircle.com. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. That's exactly what happens in our loving global film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And thanks for joining us for another episode of the Filmmakers Academy podcast. Take advantage of monthly virtual group mentorships, networking events, and new content released weekly by becoming a member today. Join today and get $20 off your first month by using the promo code FAPOD20. That is F-A-P-O-D-20 and join the number one resource for cinematographers, film crews, and do-it-all filmmakers.